Hi, and welcome to Conversations to Connect. I'm Fenella Hawksley, and on this podcast, we will be hosting conversations to share insights, research, and knowledge to inspire change and to help people feel more connected. On today's episode, I'm joined by Brendan Cox. Brendan Cox is a campaigner for more cohesive communities. He has co-founded multiple organizations that work to build more connected and cohesive communities, such as More in Common, which works to build more inclusive communities in France, Germany, the UK and the US, Survivors Against Terror, the Joe Cox Foundation, continuing the work of his late wife, and the Together Coalition. Brendan started work in the aftermath of the civil war in the former Yugoslavia, working with children who lost their parents in the war. This work gave him a long-standing passion for combating ethnic and religious hatred. He then went on to work on conflict and atrocity prevention around the world with Oxfam, and later as chief executive of the International Conflict and Genocide Prevention Organisation, Crisis Action. He served as special advisor to the British Prime Minister Gordon Brown between 2008 and 2010, where he advised on international development, conflict and foreign policy. He has worked for and advised a number of organisations, including Save the Children, the UN and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He is the author of the best-selling book More in Common, and when not working, he spends his time mountaineering, sailing and looking after his two children. Hi, Brendan. Hello. Welcome to Conversations to Connect. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? Uh, Yes, not bad at all. Yes, I've just seen my kids off to a youth club. Uh, Other than that, all good. We're recording at Brendan's boat and it is beautiful being on the river. It's amazing. <laughs> How long have you have you lived on boats? I lived on boats for about 20-something years. Makes me feel very old. So sort of post-university, really, I moved on to a narrow boat to start with and then a barge and now a sailing barge. And, yeah, it's partly the sort of part of the adventure of it, like the ability to take your house random places. Uh, <laughs> but sort of more pertinent to our conversation, it's also the, the community element of it is is absolutely central to it that sense of connection with other people that live on on the boats here have you always been interested in the topic of community i noticed that when you were just a teenager you were working with children who had lost their parents in the war in former yugoslavia so it was in bosnia and croatia yeah yeah and that definitely that brought home some of it to me and in both I guess the sort of the benefits of community but also how quickly community can fall apart in that case I guess I sort of took community and that sort of connectedness for granted when I was growing up my parents were very active in the local church and I was a very keen and geeky sea scout and also I, on the street that I lived it was a very it was a very quiet street and every evening we'd go out and play with the kids who live live next door in the in, in the surrounding houses so I sort of took that community as as just a sort of given and then, yes, in, in Yugoslavia, in the aftermath of the war there, so I, I worked there on and off for 10 years in the aftermath of the, the conflict there. And that was a different and very depressing look at community in terms of how quickly it, you can define another and how you know communities that where you had relatively high levels of intermarriage before the war could suddenly fall with relatively small amounts of prov- provocation into communities that were willing to kill each other. And so, yeah, I guess that got me thinking about some of the the nature of community, the upsides, as well as the the risks of it. And 
is that what led all of your work going forward? That certainly, that got me really interested in conflict and when communities go wrong. So after that, I ended up working for Oxfam and for the UN and for Save the Children and lots of other organisations. And then in Downing Street, all focused on conflict and looking at in the aftermath of, well, I, I guess sort of how conflict starts and then in the aftermath of conflict, how communities bring themselves back together again. And so that was definitely from my 20s through till probably about um, probably about nine or 10 years ago, my work was very sort of orientated internationally. And then probably in 2014, 2015, I started to worry much more about the trajectory of the UK. And so with my late wife, Jo, we had both worked internationally a lot on conflicts in Uganda or Democratic Republic of Congo or Sudan or Israel-Palestine. And from that, you get a sense of what some of the early stages of community disintegration look like. I'm not suggesting that the UK was about to enter a civil war or anything like that, but that the, the dehumanisation of political opponents the othering, the disconnection from each other, that we started to feel that in the UK more and more. I think 2014 was the sort of height of... It was pre-Brexit, UKIP was sort of coming first in European elections. So there was a sort of a sense that there was a rise in some of that, that extremism and that I guess we started to worry about the, the trajectory of the UK. So both Joe and I at the time then started to move our focus from international affairs I guess to much more worrying about what was happening in the in the UK. So what are those early signs? I think it's a mixture of things I, as I say I mean I think the the dehumanization of people that you disagree with so moving from you know disagreeing very loudly with people to then making that disagreement non-legitimate so talking about people as traitors or as enemies of the people you know that kind of language we saw some of that around brexit we've seen it around other things as well political violence obviously when when joe was killed but not just that the sort of hate crime spike that happened after brexit as well so those those kinds of things you often see media start to take more extreme positions and start to dehumanize uh, whole groups of people and again i think you could see that particularly on on social media in that phase so again i, I certainly wasn't predicting imminent uh, social collapse but it was just a sense of something's going wrong here and for me that wasn't about Brexit you know you can have strong views on either side of that case it's completely legitimate political arguments but that there was something deeper that was underlying our social disconnection and that unless we got to grips with that that we were in some trouble because I think that for me social disconnection is human kryptonite it's the thing that is the most dangerous for us because of how we've evolved as as humans to be connected and how central that is to our health to our happiness the functioning of our society and that whether you care about climate change or whether you care about poverty or whatever it is it first requires you to have a sense of social solidarity and that social solidarity comes from your social connection so if you feel connected with other people particularly people that might look or sound different than you but if you feel that connection you come into contact with them and you feel that connection then your ability to empathize with them grows massively and therefore your willingness to to sacrifice things and that might be willingness to pay higher taxes it might be willingness to to take collective action on things like climate climate change but i think one of the things that certainly i got wrong a lot in my early 
thinking about politics was to to focus on the appeals to social solidarity to focus on trying to get people to do things for for people who they didn't necessarily know or feel that connection with and i think that we've neglected those building blocks of social connection which underlie so many of those social issues that we're we're dealing with now and ensuring that groups of people almost have interactions with other types of people yeah i think there's uh, in the parlance it's sort of you know bonding and bridging Mm -hmm. social connections so the bonding stuff is absolutely critical and that's about in your in group however you define that are you well connected with people that could be with your family can be your friends can be within your community but then also between groups again you know you define your own groups how good at you are at connecting across those lines of difference and the reality that sometimes i think we just focus on one or either of those where both of them are absolutely critical they're also connected because unless you have decent amounts of social bonding that you feel that like you belong in your community then it is very hard for you to have the confidence to go out and build connections with people who are quote-unquote different from you and therefore lots of the work that i'm doing now is i guess starting more with how do you build that sense of connection in your communities, people who you might define as like you, as a starting point to then those bridging conversations, which are a bit harder, harder steps to take. Do you feel that we're losing some of the aspects of community in the UK? It's always danger with this stuff, isn't there, that you can end up sounding like a sort of nostalgic old person uh, and you know things were better back in, my- in the day exactly <laughs> things were better in my day when I was you know when I were a lad but having said that yes I do is <laughs> the short answer I think that and I think the data bears that out that's and, and it's multifaceted it's partly about a change in our family structure and our family size so we live in much smaller families than we used to and therefore our social connection within our families is just reduced it's partly about our friendships so again i think that we are struggling to make the kind of friends and the depth of friendships and the number of friendships that we might have had in the past and that is driven by a a decline in the connecting institutions so the things that used to bring us together so whether that's Church, for example, would have been a huge bond of of people. It would have got people together every Sunday and possibly more regularly to sing together, to stand up and sit down together, a whole series of sort of coordinated action, which we know from the social sciences, the stuff that makes you feel really bonded with each other. But it's not just churches. It's your local shop. It's your local pub. It's your youth club. You know, lots of that infrastructure that used to bring us together isn't there anymore. And I guess a lot of it has been replaced to an extent that it has with digital connections and there's absolutely a place and a value to those but they don't do the same thing they don't give you that same sense of deep connection that you need you don't have the same types of interactions online as you do face to face and therefore I I worry that we are in a stage where those institutions have collapsed our connections have reduced but we're still giving people I guess a sort of pale imitation of the types of connections so we're we make people feel like they're connected because they've just checked their Facebook messages, but that's not the same thing as being being connected. Definitely. And, and even, I guess, the office or places of work used to also be one of those, and then that has become less and less. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think 60% of people now say that they're lonely at work. And, you know, I mean, 
there's a, a larger literature on sort of how frustrating people find their their work but it's also again the change in the nature of work so we're increasingly likely and this was even pre-covid but we we work in smaller workplaces so they're sort of the big factories that used to have their own bands and their own creches and all their own whatever else no longer exist or don't it's certainly the scale that they used to so we live in smaller workplaces and then we also have more stratified working environments so that even within a company you might have the uber drivers as opposed to uber head office and they'll never come into contact with each other and you then have that you know as per the uber example the gig economy where again people are working essentially as sort of sole trailers and aren't getting that social connection through work which again isn't a problem if you're getting it elsewhere but i think the reality is we're not getting it elsewhere yeah that's so interesting i know that Joe Cox, your wife, late wife, was really interested in the topic of loneliness and it was she set up the Loneliness Commission. Yeah. And because of that, 20 million was invested into loneliness and and it led to us having the first ever loneliness minister. Yeah. So why was loneliness so important to Joe and to yourself? I think for Joe it was a it was a couple of things. One, it was partly her own sort of personal experience, particularly when she went to university. She felt very lonely during that, particularly the first first year, really, felt very disconnected. And then also another transition when, when we had our first child and she dropped out of work, as, you know, lo- lots of young mothers do, and again felt like the sort of the infrastructure that she'd had previously wasn't there. But it was then heightened by her experience of, I think it was when she was campaigning to be an MP, actually, and she knocked on someone's door in Batley. And this guy had not spoken to anybody for, I think, over a week. And and he just wanted to talk to Joe about, you know, anything, you know, because he wanted that social connection. He didn't have it. And she came back that day in floods of tears, um, just very sort of, very... You know, one of the things about Joe is she's hugely empathetic, just sort of felt other people's pain incredibly strongly. And she came back just, as I say, in, in floods of tears and just determined to do something about it and sensed that there wasn't sort of political engagement or political will at that stage. And that's why she set up the, the Loneliness Commission that she did. And obviously, after her tragic murder, you then became a single parent. So you were kind of dealing with... I know that the experience of being a single parent, but also grieving, that's like a combined factor of loneliness. How difficult was it? Because I know also you've carried on with her work. So you continue to work with the Joe Cox Foundation, which was set up after her death. Yeah. Yeah. How difficult was that for you, managing your grief? Yeah. I mean, obviously Joe's death was the most difficult thing I've ever had and hopefully will ever have to deal with. I think the what sort of got me through it was the sort of the two things that I talked about when Joe died. So the first was I knew immediately that the only thing that really mattered was making sure the kids were okay and that making their world as full of love and adventures and kindness and excitement as possible was the only thing that Joe would have cared about. And it was the only thing that I really cared about. So that gave me a real sort of sense of purpose. And particularly in those early days, I just was on a mission to to look after them. And then at the same time, I also knew that I didn't want Joe's death to set back the work that she cared about. And more than that, I guess, I, 
I wanted it to galvanize the work that she cared about. So Joe and I, we met at work, we met at, and we were both working for Oxfam and we worked sort of hand in glove throughout our career. We had different roles obviously and did different things, but we always sort of strategized and worked out what we should be doing together and tried to support each other. And so I didn't want, I didn't want that to, to, to set back her work. I wanted to advance it and therefore setting up the Joe Cox Foundation and lot, and getting her friends, Seema uh, Kennedy and Rachel Reeves, to continue the work on loneliness, for example, that both felt the right, the right thing to do. It felt like there was an opportunity to do more on it. But also, again, it gave me a real focus because I think the, the worst thing, certainly for me and, and knowing my own mind as well as I do, might not be very well, <laughs> but had I been, if I hadn't had those two really clear areas of focus, I would have not, not come through it very well at all I don't think and so the Joe Cox Foundation is one of those things that you carried on this was set up in honor of Joe's values and belief in a kinder fairer and more connected world what are the aims of the foundation and what do you think is the most important part of the work so I think the most important part of the work comes out of her her maiden speech the more in common line which is, you know, obviously a, a memorable line and it's it's definitely resonated and people are connected with it. But it's also, there's an idea behind it which is deeper than just the line, I guess. And it's that we spend a lot of our time talking about our differences and identifying why we're different from each other. And, you know, our difference and our diversity isn't important and we need to recognise it and we need to value that. But the thing that we're crap at... Uh, is recognising our commonality. And it's our commonality that makes us feel connected to each other. It's not our differences. It's our appreciation of the things that we have in common, despite the fact that we're different in other ways. It's that that is the the gold dust that we should be building and hanging on to. And that too much of our time we spend focused on those areas where we disagree with each other. And that's true in politics, but it's also just true... I think more broadly when we're talking about society and we're talking about who we are as as individuals. So the idea behind it was to to rebuild that sense of what of what connects us and what we have in common. So that is the major focus of the foundation's work is still in in that area, but it also covers civility and politics. So again out of what happened to Joe trying to to build a politics which is I guess uh, less brutal, more engaging, one where people of all different backgrounds, and particularly women, feel comfortable, comfortable engaging. And finally, it works on building, because so much of her historic work was internationally, so it works on building, I guess, that international sense of solidarity and, again, a particular focus on supporting women and dealing with the risk of genocide and war crimes overseas. It's got those three broad aims, but most of its work would be under that more in common agenda. So for those who don't know the quote, we have more in common than that which divides us. Yes, yes. So that was from her maiden speech. And Um, it's now a globally recognised and quoted line. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know if she would ascribe herself as the sole author of it. It's a sort of an idea who I think, and, and she articulated it powerfully. But it was, as I say, it was, it's very much more than a line. There's, there's lots of sort of thinking, you know, at that time, 
when Joe was just going into Parliament and I was, at the time, I was doing a research project in, in Poland and France and Germany looking at the rise of the authoritarian right in particular. And we were having all these conversations and she sort of latched on to this sort of sense that, yes, that there's a, a big risk to not talking about our commonality for taking that... To, to, to take that for granted and particularly perhaps we on the left spend we can fixate on our differences rather than than what we have in common and that there's a there's an opportunity to to feel more connected to each other by by building that commonality on both sides i guess probably totally. on all sides of the political spectrum yeah and even within groups <laughs> that's definitely true 100 percent. so what does that line mean to you I think it means the same thing in terms of the importance of building and reminding people of our of our commonality and using that to forge more cohesive and more connected communities. And it also reminds me of Jo's clarity of thought and her willingness to take positions on things and to make an argument. And it also reminds me of the red dress that she was wearing when she gave her Aww. maiden speech. <laughs> It's also the name of the book that you wrote about Joe yep. and the name of the company that you've set up that you've co-founded that aims to build more inclusive democratic societies in the US, UK, Poland, Germany and France. So you mentioned just now and in your book, More in Common, that political extremism is rising in these countries and that divisions in society are increasing. So how does More in Common aim to tackle that? So what More in Common does, so I, I set up More in Common, I'm not working with them now, but I started, the, the research project that I started probably started in 2015, I think, which was looking at that, uh, that changing landscape. And what it was trying to do and what it does now is to really try to build and provide insight in terms of what's happening and where people are, to try and help explain the rise of, of that politics of extremism, but also to better articulate what it is we have in common. So it, it, again, and that's where the, the name comes, obviously, that you know, polling spends a lot of its time showing pollsters and politicians and others where we differ and where we disagree with each other but one of the interesting things is actually how much we agree on so you know on debates as diverse as trans rights to environmental rights we spend a lot of time arguing about a set of things where you have very noisy extremes at either end of the spectrum but actually the vast majority of the public agree with each other and we don't talk about that so helping us I guess sort of realize those areas of commonality can also sometimes take out the, the poison in the politics. I think, you know, one of the things that social media, particularly Twitter, has done when you're talking about political debate is that you have a very angry, very loud, far left, far right, sort of, you know, extremes in different directions. And you have probably about 80% of, well, more than that, actually, probably about 90% of, of users who are much quieter, who have much less extreme positions. And there's a risk sometimes that you can take those the loud voices as being representative of where the real debate is and showing that that's not the case is a, is an important corrective, I think. And certainly the algorithms prioritise more extremist views, don't they? And then more people see it and then it creates more Absolutely. engagement. Absolutely. And, and that is, that's a huge thing. You know, you, you'll often sort of hear social media companies defending themselves by saying, you know, we're not a publisher, we're just providing a platform. But as you say, the reality is the nature of the platform they're providing draws attention to particular 
sentiments and particularly violent language, particularly emotional language is the stuff that they prioritise because it's the most engaging and that has all kinds of knock-on impact. So how can we make the majority and commonality louder? I think it is partly about, from a conceptual level, I think it is partly about trying to reset the narrative about as I was just saying, the fact that those extreme voices on Twitter do not represent where the political debate is and we need to actually turn it off and spend less time worrying about it, that the the views that we're told, you know, the political polarisation that we're told about, definitely there and it definitely exists, but actually there's still huge amounts of commonality and connection. And then I think at a sort of more, less conceptual level and a more practical level, it's about spending time with each other and connecting with each other because it's it's very easy to breed sort of hate or contempt or whatever else for people when you don't meet them face to face when you meet them face to face it's very hard to do that and in fact and humans are naturally social and naturally wired to try to build empathy and connection with each other where we can when you come face to face with each other so the, the thing that i care most about is how do we rebuild our opportunity to connect with each other how do we make sure that those relationships give us the sort of you know you know this evidence as 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 well as anybody but the sort of the physical benefits of connection the mental health benefits of connection but also then how do they stack up into the societal benefits you know trust in democracy trust in each other has a huge impact trust in each other has a huge, huge impact on the functioning of the economy for example on economic mobility so the goods that come out of that social connection are huge but at the moment, we're not prioritising it. And so that shift is the thing that I'm really interested in. It's like a foundation, isn't it? Because even even things like when you're feeling chronically lonely or disconnected, you have less empathy for other people. Absolutely, yes. And, you know, there's, there's great experiments with mice, isn't there, where they have a, a mouse and they keep it by itself and then they introduce another mouse and it will attack the, the newcomer mice. And there's another one with which is more around people, although less... Uh, less cruel than that experiment, where if you're lonely and you're asked about the safety of your neighbourhood, you will see your neighbourhood as less safe, less welcoming, because it changes your perceptions. It, it, it activates your, your warning senses. It makes you feel that you're in a hostile environment, which then makes it harder for you to make that next step in terms of socially connecting with each other. So it's a huge, it has huge impact. And I think it's a sort of, I think it's a a time bomb under our society in terms of the impacts of it, but it's also a total treasure trove of opportunity. If we can get to the point where both we as individual in, individuals recognise its transformative effect, but also then we can get that more central to our politics, I think the the impact both for individuals and for society that can come for that is absolutely huge. But we have to we have to get there first. Just thinking about that mice experiment, we almost had the human version of that with the pandemic very true yeah are you noticing that there is increased hostility towards others after being socially isolated for two years on a societal level it's a very good question so i think two things happened so i think in the early stages actually you had a building of trust in each other and where that came from was a sense of although we were disconnected from each other physically we felt connected to each other because we were all going through the same thing it's the same stuff that Durkheim recognized about war and that you'll see in the aftermath the, the stats of suicide and homicide in the aftermath of 9-11 or any natural disaster mental health massively improves in that first phase 
and you saw the suicide rate in COVID uh, reducing that in that first phase. Not because you know those things aren't the wars and natural disasters aren't stressful and anxiety producing they are but because the benefit of that sense of being in something together outweighs it obviously then what you had with covid is you had alongside that sense of all being in it together you also had a physical sense of being apart and over time then and the sort of longer term mental health implications of it that overrode the that initial sense of feeling connected and feeling together you know that sort of that feel good moment of the nhs clap for example was huge but then start to get overwhelmed both by our physical isolation, but also a growing sense, partly for political reasons, that maybe we weren't all in it together and different people were doing different things. And, and so that started to fall apart. And I think some of the long-term implications of that, both, you know, we're seeing in the sort of anxiety and depression stats, particularly amongst kids, but we're also seeing it in our perception of our friendships. So post-COVID, you're seeing a substantial increase in the number of people who say that they have fewer friends, that they spend less time with them, they spend more time on screens. So that has definitely been the impact. Whether that will, back to your initial question, whether that will have a short-term galvanising effect on, ex- on more extreme support for sort of more extreme politics or othering, I don't know. It's a really interesting. It's a really interesting question. I also think it went on so long that then people became comfortable with staying by themselves. That's definitely true. And then it became harder to. Yes. Like I even found that I, I went to a birthday party and I was with two other friends who I knew had had kind of similar experiences and were by themselves for quite a lot of time during COVID. And we were all really anxious and nervous about going to our friend's birthday yeah. party. Yeah. And it was it was like we were in our you know late twenties. It's just a party with our friends. Like we'd been to loads before when we were in our early 20s. Why were we so anxious? Yeah. And I think about that of like younger people who haven't maybe had the experience of their early 20s or totally. older people who then it, it's harder to go out anyway. Yeah. And it's also that sort of so that social anxiety that I think I think so many people felt that in the aftermath. Some people have got over it. I think some people still haven't. And the habit forming nature of it as well. So one of the issues with uh, one of the many issues with COVID is that it also got us out of habits. Um, so, for example, uh, volunteering numbers have dropped off, and part of the reason for that is because people just got out of the habit. They're, the organisation they were volunteering with closed down, or you know, closed down temporarily, and they just haven't gone back to it. You see, there's been a drop in the already relatively small congregations at churches as people that used to go each week have now decided not to go each week or some of them now join remotely because they've got into the habit of you know it's easier than having to get out of the get out of the house so definitely the long-term implication of it i think is pretty grim but what it does two things one it it's essentially in most cases a speeding up of an existing trend so it's not that pre-covid you know we were building our social connections and it, it, it in most cases we we're already in a bad place and now we're in a worse place And then the more optimistic take on it is that it did something to us all of a sudden that would have happened over a longer period of time. And I think it did remind lots of us that our social connections really matter and we miss them when they're not there. And perhaps we need to spend more time in those social connections and less time on awful Zoom quizzes or whatever else it's, whatever else it is, Netflix. So I hope that there might be an upside to it as well as all the downsides that might galvanize a movement of people to say actually you know social connection really matters and we felt it then and we want to build it build it now and i suppose there's something about if it 
if it happens so slowly, you can almost not notice it. But because we had such an extreme going from everything being normal to being completely isolated, I guess it really showed what life without social connections was like. Totally. And, and yeah, I am hearing on a lot of podcasts and a lot of conversations that people are feeling more lonely, but they are saying how important social connection is. And it's a conversation in multiple countries. I read today supermarkets in Holland are introducing like chatty checkouts. Oh, brilliant. To kind of help with reducing loneliness. I mean, yeah, I so obviously that's just a supermarket, but there's so many places in society where we can prioritize social connection i think there's definitely a you know in in terms of how you start to win on some of these issues the first thing is recognizing it's an issue and i feel like we're getting there now like the debate around loneliness is more central the debate around social connection in the aftermath of covid is more central i think we've quite got to the stage where that is the impact of that loneliness and that social connection are understood enough and i think it will take us getting to that point to then get to the next stage which is galvanizing people to do something about it. So I definitely, I, I'm, I'm partly optimistic just because I am, um, but I am, I think, intellectually optimistic about this because I do think there is, we're quite a long way that first stage of recognition of the problem and with a little bit more organization and a little bit more focus, we can get to a tipping point where that turns over into both at an individual level and a political level, galvanizing uh, a real movement to do something about it. Definitely. And I think that links with what you've set up with another company that you've co-founded, the Together Coalition, that states its aim is to bridge divides and create stronger community connection. So what is the Together Coalition? So that's what I spend most of my time on at the moment. Well, I'm, I'm writing a book about social connectedness very slowly. Um, but alongside that, I spend most of my time on the Together Coalition, which I set up with the Archbishop of Canterbury and a bunch of others. It's not a religious thing, but he was a, a very good convener in terms of bringing people together from all different backgrounds. And what it tries to do is as you say, to build kind of closer, more connected communities. And the first way it tries to do that is to build moments of national connection. So one of the things that I've always felt is that there's something deeply British about wanting to be more connected with our neighbours and wanting to, to engage with people, but needing an excuse to do so. There's that sort of slight British awkwardness, which I think, to your point, is probably intensified post-COVID, that what we really need is those excuses and we need more of them and more of them and more of them. And there's great ones that already exist, like the big lunch. There's the one that we set up at the Joe Cox Foundation, the great get together at Together Coalition. We've set up something called National Thank You Day. We've also just run something called the Big Help Out, which is around volunteering and the coronation. But all of that is about just trying to create opportunities and moments that galvanize and give people that first step. Now, None of these things by themselves is an answer to our social disconnection because they're one-off moments. But the question is, is whether you can use those as a starting point to then have a conversation that might lead to a friendship or have a connection. And if you end up with enough of these and you end up with one a month where, you know, your neighbours are getting together and then you start to build that regularity, which is critical to dealing with loneliness and isolation. So it's giving people that excuse. Alongside that, what Together is trying to do is to start to influence the politics and policy around this so to take some of the learnings that we know builds that builds that social connection and trying to push that more central into into our politics so it's designed both to be a sort of a galvanizer at the public level and also an influencer at the at the political level and it combines 
different groups of people. So you said the Archbishop of Canterbury, but it's also businesses, other religious groups. It's incredibly groups. diverse. Yeah. So it's it's a very weird uh, meeting when everybody gets together because you have the Archbishop of Canterbury, you have the editor of The Sun, you've got the editor of The Mirror, you've got the CEO of the NHS, you've got the head of the Scouts and the Guides, you've got people that viscerally disagree with each other, you've got the head of the Vote Leave campaign, for example, and you've got uh, trade unions, you've got this incredible sort of range of organisations. But what they're focused on and what the the mission is is that thing that we have in common which is trying to build enhanced social connection because we know and to your point the sort of the multi-sectoral bit of it is that whether you know from a business point of view you know that social connection massively matters to your staff you also know that for the functioning of an economy for economic growth for economic social mobility our social connections are totally key uh, if you're a religious organisation, you know that you know one of the roles that you've always played is building that social connection, and that's happening less, and therefore people are engaging in it less. So for all of those different organisations, come at it through quite different lenses, but it takes a coalition to deal with it, partly because the scale of the change is, you know, it's a generational change that we need. This isn't just a sort of short-term policy that we're trying to win on. This is about trying to change the way that we all live and make it easier for us to connect with each other. Um, and therefore, you need to build that coalition that reaches right across politics, right across sector, if you're to galvanise the scale of the change that, that we need. It's in the early stages. We only set it up. It really got it launched in 2020, just as we went into the pandemic. It's slightly both good and bad timing from that point of view. But it's a relatively new thing. And, and it's also, a, I guess, quite a humble thing, although it's got these incredible organisations that are part of it. It's all about being part of a wider movement of people that are trying to build that social connection, accepting that no organisation, no coalition can can do it by itself. And do you think that community and connection is the antidote to loneliness and division? Broadly, yes. Uh, I mean, I don't think that anything is a panacea. And I think that there is risk, you know, where we started this conversation, there, there's risk with community connectedness if you only do the bonding piece and you don't do the bridging. We have a sort of groupishness as humans, which is where our social connection comes from. But it's very easy, you know, there's sort of, I guess there's two ways of building that social connection. One is to build it in the way that we've been talking about. The other is to say, well, at least you're not one of them, you're not a Jew or you're not a Muslim or whatever it is. And what you'll see the uh, political extremes doing is galvanising connection by othering groups so that so there's real risk to it. And so we need to be careful about how we how we engage in it and thinking about the, the, the bridging as well as the bonding. By bridging, so you mean the bonding would be connecting with potentially similar yeah. groups and bridging is ensuring that groups from different backgrounds connect exactly okay. and what that looks like where you you know in northern ireland that might be catholic and protestant where i live it might be bengali and and white british it might be richer and poorer groups might be older and, and younger depending on your on where you live but always thinking about let's let's use that the bonding capital that we create that those bonding connections to then act as a not as a sort of ceiling to our social connections but as a floor on which to then make wider wider social connections which are also incredibly good to you for you in terms of your economic mobility in, in particular and then to your other part of that question when it comes to loneliness one of one of the interesting things from the work that we do is that sometimes when we ask people who have taken part in some of the activities that we've helped facilitate people come away from it feeling more lonely in some cases and that's because when you suddenly feel part of something for a day and then 
it goes back to normal you feel that absence and you feel you know that's the thing that you want you want that sense of community connection and i you know even in even if we had much stronger communities and that sense of connection was there you will still have people that will feel isolated from it and so yes i'm not suggesting it fixes everything but i think it is the most important thing we can do to have the biggest impact on that on that challenge that's so interesting yeah I've, I, you almost don't realize how lonely you are until you're not for a day or... yeah yeah you feel that absence um and it's yeah it's 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 hard for those people and we're, we're thinking about in the design of the events and the things that we do we're thinking about how do we how do we lessen that how do we make it easy for people that attend an event like that on the day to build a connection that might you know do something the following week what's the sort of follow-on mechanisms so that these things aren't just one hit wonders then people then walk away feeling a bit sort of nostalgic for it and a bit shit that it's not happening the next week i caught up with re-engage the ceo of re-engage yeah, and yeah. they do monthly tea parties so it sometimes yeah you need a regular a regular as well like a regular exactly. social contact definitely i mean re regularity of social contact is totally critical to that sense of social connection and and actually giving people something substantial to do together as well so it feels like it's a sort of joint enterprise there's a bunch of things that we know but there's also you know there's those exceptional moments you know we've done a lot for example around i don't know things like the nhs's birthday or the coronation or the big help out the big help out did you say that six point five yeah, 6.5 million, million people took people. part in the day. Wow. Yeah, and that was around volunteering and it was using the the peg of the coronation. But really what it was about from, from my point of view was about providing people with an opportunity to reconnect with each other, to do something with each other. And the crucial thing with volunteering, of course, is it has two huge co-benefits. One is that it's a regular, generally a regular engagement that you do something meaningful with other people. So it gives you all that, that sense of bonding. But what it also does is it provides the social infrastructure, if you're running a scout troop or a coffee morning or whatever it is, that then other people can go along and, you know, it connects. So it has those dual benefits. It's really good for you as an individual, but it also creates that community benefit in most cases. And doing something where you feel like you're doing good also then makes you have greater self-esteem. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we're running out of time. So I could talk to you for like three more hours, but I will have to keep those questions for another day. So we usually end this podcast on two final questions. So they are, when did you last feel lonely? And what advice would you give to help someone feel more connected? So... I think my most profound moment of of feeling lonely was when obviously when when Joe died but I think after that it would come in waves and it wasn't that you know I've got an incredibly strong family I live in a community of people who I know incredibly well and very happily look after my children at the drop of a hat and I've got a very good set of friends but there was a loneliness in in those moments where your kid is ill and they've got a cough and you're not sure whether it's a bad enough cough to take them to the hospital or whether you can just take them to the doctors the next day or when your kid's been hit at school by another kid and you want to be able to have that conversation that you can only really have with your partner and to feel that you know I could have it with lots of other people but that sense of, of closeness I I found incredibly difficult not 
not having that. And then on the the advice to people thinking about their thinking about loneliness and wanting to be reconnected. I mean, I think the the thing I would say is join three things. So find some time in your schedule, which is easier said than done. <laughs> Uh, to join three things that are face-to-face -face activities if you possibly can because the evidence suggests that in fact just joining one thing has huge dividends having two things has even more three things even more after that it actually starts to trail off you might start to enjoy them less but joining one two or three things there's a face-to-face -face activity something that you care about something that you enjoy doing it's incredibly hard to take that first step sometimes but committing to do that for a month or committing to do that for three months. Once you start it, you won't stop. But taking that first step and giving your, having the, the self-discipline to be, even if I feel awkward and it feels uncomfortable and everybody, I think everyone's looking at me in that first meeting, I want to go back and I'm going to do that for three months, say. The habit that will come out of that will, will, will change your sense of, of connection, I think. Definitely. And re repeated social interactions will build connection with others so it, it takes time it's not going to be a one-time thing you'll meet your best friends for life but <laughs> and sometimes you might go to something awful and you should never go again <laughs> <That's true. laughs> but generally sticking at things beyond the uh, the first week is a good is a good idea well thank you so much this has been a wonderful conversation thank you um, thank you thanks for having me <laughs> <laughs>